Okay. Well, now it's time for the Word. And so, we are in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. You can turn to page 838. Mark chapter 2, page 838. If you're using one of the church Bibles. So this morning, this is actually part 2 of a sermon we started last week. So if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry if you weren't, because we did all the background introduction to this passage, but you can go online, and there's actually an update in your bulletin that talks about how to go online to our website. By the way, I forgot to dismiss the kids, first through sixth grade. You can dismiss at this time and head towards the door over there for age-appropriate teaching. So if you're first through sixth grade, you may dismiss now. Or you can stay, whatever you would like to do. Mike, you can stay. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the Sabbath spectacles, that's what we're looking at. So you can go online, you can download or listen actually to the sermon from last week to get, or any sermon that you happen to miss. So let me read you a little story in that by way of introduction to the sermon today. I got to move fairly quickly. Hopefully we can get through this. Henry Nelson of Wilmington, Delaware, was a veteran of World War II. He served as an instructor in the Army Chemical Warfare Department. Yet he ignored a warning by the superintendent of the Riverside Housing Development that the apartment he lived in was being fumigated with hydrogen cyanide gas. Tore down the barricade at the door and went in after two blankets. The neighbors saw him remove the sign and the barricade and go in to retrieve the two blankets, and they called the development office. But when employees arrived, it was too late. Nelson lay sprawled on the living room floor with the two blankets in his arm. And despite both written and verbal warnings, and despite his training in the military, in the army, he went in to his death. Henry Nelson's stubborn persistence illustrates the Pharisees' unsettling behavior towards Jesus in the text before us this morning. To their harm, they stubbornly ignored all the clear signs, warnings, and even the scriptures that they claimed to be experts in. If you're in Mark chapter 2, We'll be reading verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Just follow along with me. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. 
And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. That is how to destroy him. Last week, as I was saying, we looked at some background information, specifically on the Sabbath, and we will not do that this morning. We do not have the time. We also looked at the context to help illustrate how shocking and disturbing the Pharisees' behavior really was in light of the fact that Jesus and his disciples were entirely innocent in this matter. They had done nothing wrong. They had not violated the law of God as he had attended it. He obeyed it. And the Son of God, that is Jesus, made multiple attempts to show them the error of their ways, that they were wrong, actually, in this matter. Instead of humbly submitting their hearts and minds to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, by letting him correct their erroneous thinking, they stubbornly decided to plan for his destruction. That's the review from last week. So this week, I said we would look at three disturbing characteristics of Jesus' opponents, that is the Pharisees, that we as Jesus' followers, Christians, must not imitate. You can open your bulletin for those of you who are unfamiliar with this and look inside and there is an outline where you can follow along to keep track or to take notes. Additionally, let me say something before I get too far into the sermon. Next week, you do not want to miss. You don't want to miss any week, but next week especially, you don't want to miss. Two things are happening. One, communion, and two, there will be a very special guest, and I will not tell you who, a very special guest that will be with us, and he will want to meet you. So please come and bring somebody with you. That's next week. What is the first disturbing characteristic of Jesus' opponents that we as Jesus' followers must not imitate or duplicate or act out? It is they are hypercritical. That's the first point in the outline. They are hypercritical. That means they are excessively critical. They are on a mission, beloved, the Pharisees, to find fault. They are on a mission to find fault. And we see two examples of this in the text before us. This morning, Mark chapter 2, just look back at it, verse 23. I'll read it again, and verse 24. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here's the picture. Jesus and his disciples are minding their own business. They are traveling And as they travel, they make their way through a grain field. Now, in order for the Pharisees to point out so quickly this so-called infraction, they must have been following closely behind and monitoring Jesus' every move. Or as one commentator stated, it appears that the Pharisees have taken to lurking behind every grain stock. Every grain stock. Listen, they were not following Jesus because they were affectionate of him or looking to hear from the master 
teacher. They were looking to find him doing something wrong that they might accuse him and hold him accountable for some violation of the law. Even in the text we just read, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They were not asking the disciples or asking Jesus about the disciples' actions. They were condemning him. You see, you would expect them to come and just simply say, hey, that's odd. We notice that your disciples are taking from the grain field on the Sabbath. And last week we talked about this. The oral law that they had created made it be that if you were to eat or pluck from the field, they considered it reaping, and reaping was defined as work according to them, not according to the law of God. Well, reaping was work, but they defined plucking and eating as reaping. You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath, so in their eyes, his disciples had violated the law. But in the eyes of God, they had not. They had not. So here they are, following behind, watching looking, hoping to catch him do something wrong. And you see that in the word look in the text. Look. It means see here or now look. And the word calls special attention to whatever it introduces. So here it expresses shocked disapproval of an action which, as the Pharisees see it, requires immediate correction. Immediate correction. The Pharisees, as I said, are making a charge or accusation against Jesus' disciples and as his leader, as their leader, against Jesus himself. Why are your disciples doing what is unlawful? It reminds me of that brother or sister looking to get one over on their siblings. So they stand in the corner waiting with bated breath for their brother or sister to do something wrong, and immediately when that happens, they run to mom and dad and say, do you know what Johnny's doing, right? And we recognize those as tattletales. That's exactly what's going on. Waiting with bated breath to catch Jesus or his disciples doing something wrong. And we see it again in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Read with me. Look back at the text. Again, He, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The they in that sentence are the Pharisees. If you look at verse 4 and verse 6 from the same text, we know it is referring to the Pharisees. That's the flow of thought. Also in Luke chapter 6 verse 7, which is a parallel account of this story, In another gospel, Luke identifies these people as the Pharisees. Listen, they're not interested in learning from Jesus, as I said, or hearing him explain the scriptures, or finding out more about his God-ordained mission, or his message about the kingdom of God. No, they just want to find something, anything wrong with him so they can condemn him. They're watching. According to the text, beloved, this is very shocking. They are well aware of his supernatural ability to heal. Look back at the text. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him, this man with a withered hand, on the Sabbath. 
The reality that they understand that this Jesus has the power to restore people, to make them whole, to cure them of diseases that no one else could, to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb and the ability to walk to the lame has no impact on them. None. That doesn't influence them in any way. Instead, they are simply looking at him to perform another wonderful, life-changing miracle so they can accuse him of doing something they have determined is illegal to do on the Sabbath, something they have defined as work also, that is healing. They had added to the law of God by saying, if someone heals another person on the Sabbath, that is work. And since we know work is not allowed on the Sabbath, Jesus is violating the law. So they're waiting for him to heal. Can you see the picture? Are you kidding me? They are hypercritical. They made it their mission to find fault with Jesus. They are not concerned for the welfare of Jesus or his followers or even for mankind in general. They are so caught up with pointing out what they believe to be sins or shortcomings of others that they never once stop to evaluate and critique their own messed up lives and thinking. In this story, the rabbinical Sabbath regulations, as we have said, they were enforcing were misapplications of God's holy law. The Pharisees had gone too far by adding to God's word. But self-evaluation or repentance was not on their list of things to do. They had another mission in mind. Fault finders. Hypercritical. Now let me talk to you for just a second. Christians regularly run stop signs. I, I, was re- I, I almost brought the video because I just thought it was hilarious. There's, if you go to YouTube, you, there was this video. This guy put this camera out in front of his street where this four-way stop sign. And for 20 minutes, it's a very active intersection, only one person actually stopped. It cracked me up. And he, I don't know if they were Christians or not, but I know Christians regularly run, some of them, stop signs. Or they mistreat their spouse or their kids. Or, just giving you some examples, they steal from their employer by not giving them a full eight hours. And guess what? They don't see their problem. But when it comes to seeing others' faults, they have 20-20 vision. The sad story here, beloved, is Jesus had no faults. He did nothing wrong. But the fault-finding, hypercritical Pharisees were only willing to give correction, not receive it. They were righteous in their own eyes. Think about it. They could have reproached Jesus much differently. They could have been gracious in their response, asking Jesus, Have we rightly understood how to observe the Sabbath? They could have done that. They could have seen the contradiction. Here's this man. Wow, I mean, look at this guy. There's nobody like him. We've never seen anything like this. He speaks with authority. His words cause demons to 
take off. He speaks a word and the people are healed right before our very eyes. Paralegs get up and walk. The blind see this withered man in a moment with his withered hand will be restored. He forgives sins. Maybe we should ask Jesus, you seem to be otherworldly. Something we have not ever come into contact with. It is possible maybe we have misunderstood the law of God. Help us. This is our understanding that healing on the Sabbath or plucking from a grain field is considered work. And we know clearly from the law of God that work on the Sabbath is forbidden. Would you help correct our thinking? Or tell us where we've gone wrong. No, they did none of that, beloved. They assume their superior knowledge and they use it to attack the Lord. The Lord. Why? Because they're hypercritical. Even if they were right, could they have approached Jesus differently, you think? Could they have approached him with, with grace? No. Listen, beloved, if we, you and I, And the reason I'm talking about this is because typically this is what happens. We look at these stories about the Pharisees or any other person that has bad behavior in the Bible. And we go, oh, look at them. That's disgusting and vile. I can't believe anybody would do that. And then we do the same things. And so in looking at these stories of the Pharisees and and Mark has set them up so that we can see the radical, disturbing behavior of how they treated Jesus and ultimately what led up to them conspiring to kill him, we need to be careful that we don't do the very things that they did. If we spent more time evaluating our own lives before God instead of everyone else's, (laughs) the church would be in much better shape. I'll give you a personal illustration in my own life. Something very simple. I was driving and someone cut me off. Maybe you've had that happen. This wasn't recently. It was a while ago. And boy, I was I was unhappy. <laughs> I was unhappy. I, I think I may have said a few things. I was actually angry. I was angry because it wasn't, a, it wasn't one of those cutoffs where I could have crashed. They paid absolutely no attention, and I didn't hunt them down or pull out a gun or shoot them or anything like that, but in my heart I did. I did do all those things in my heart. And this is how the Lord just, he has a sense of humor. Maybe three days later, I did exactly the same thing to someone else. And they did want to kill me, and fortunately they didn't have a gun, but they had a few choice words and some sign language that they used when they drove by. But listen, it just hit me. You know, I get so irate with this individual. They probably, that individual probably did the same thing I did. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't looking. I was distracted. I made, you know, a turn into the left lane. I cut this person off. I scared them to death. I could have killed them. That's probably exactly what the other person did. But I had no grace for that other person. At the time when they did it to me, no grace at all, no forgiveness. No, I just had a hypercritical spirit. I was looking to find fault. It is a hypercritical spirit, beloved, that will make you blind to your own faults. And I would encourage you to write down Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and read that on your own. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. 
The second disturbing characteristic of the Jesus of Jesus opponents of the Pharisees was they they were hateful. They were hateful. So they were hypercritical. They had no grace. They were hateful. They had no love. And we see that clearly in their willingness to associate with the Herodians and their desire in associating with them to kill Jesus. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, the second part of verse 5, and we'll read verse 6. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Luke chapter 6, verse 11, is a parallel story. There we are told that after Jesus healed the withered man's hand, the text reads like this, but they, that is the Pharisees, were filled with fury. That's another word for rage. They were filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now listen, the Pharisees' hate is so strong that they conspire with the Herodians. That may not mean anything to you, but let me talk a little bit about the Herodians. These were men who were supporters of Herod Agrippa, a wicked man, a wicked man, according to Luke chapter 3, verse 19. Not a man that you would want to befriend. This was the man that had political rule over the territory of Galilee where Jesus was. This Herod is the same one that had John the Baptist beheaded, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. This Herod is the same one that mocked Jesus at his trial before they crucified him, Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 11. The Pharisees who despised Herod, they were not friends of Herod, were willing to overlook their feelings and partner with Herod's supporters if it meant that they could destroy Jesus. You ever heard that phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's exactly what's going on here. They would normally not be in any relationship with the Herodians, but the Herodians also were interested in Jesus' destruction. They saw possibly Jesus as a threat to Herod's power seeing in his disciples the seeds of revolution. And they wanted things to stay status quo. They thought that this King Jesus might overthrow the leader of Galilee. So they were willing to enter into this relationship with the Pharisees that Jesus might be killed. Now what stands out here again Is this man that Jesus is about to heal, that he calls forward, who has a withered hand? Tradition tells us, you don't find it in the text, but Jewish tradition says that this man's withered hand kept him from doing his trade. So he was using his hand in order to do the trade. Something happened to him. We don't know what. But now he's basically unemployed and destitute. Okay, Some of you understand what it means to be unemployed for a long period of time. He can't support himself. Jesus, in healing this man, would have given him the ability again to make a living, to feed himself, to not beg. But you know what? It had no impact on the Pharisees. No impact at all. Either in their expression or in their happiness 
for the man. And even no impact in their fondness for the healer. You would think one healing after another, one good deed that Jesus did after another would cause them to question what's going on in their hearts and minds, to say, how could we be so against a man that would do such good, that he would restore to this man the ability to feed himself, to work, to provide himself a living? No, no expression there. Instead, we're told that they immediately leave after the withered hand is healed and they hold counsel with the Herodians how they might kill him. These men, these Pharisees, were so blinded by their hate that they could not rejoice in the good fortune of this man. It's ironic, beloved, that Jesus' healing of a man on the Sabbath was a crime in the eyes of the Pharisees, but they were comfortable on the Sabbath planning Jesus' murder. There are two great commandments that God, Jesus, gives us. He was asked by a lawyer in Matthew chapter 22, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he gave them two. Maybe you've heard them. The first one is to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, for the Christian hate, has no place. And it needs to be replaced with love. Let me suggest something to you. If you want to hate something, direct it towards your sin. Direct it towards your sin instead of another human being. And certainly not against God. If you think with me for just a moment all the atrocities that have happened on the face of this planet because of one man's hate of another. And the greatest atrocity was when those men took their Lord and nailed him to a Roman cross to die. Hate. Beloved, we don't want to be hypercritical. We don't want to be hateful. And the real reason all of these things were happening was because these men were hard-hearted. That's our third point. Hard-hearted. They were unwilling to submit. No grace, no love, no submission. They refused to submit their will and their thinking to the Lord of the universe. Maybe you've never heard this, but one goal for the Christian is to think God's thoughts after him. Just remember that. My goal as a Christian is to think God's thoughts after him. It means to understand and interpret things the way God does. The way God does. Not as I would, but as God would and does. And does. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Before he heals the man, Jesus makes another attempt to talk some sense into his critics. 
So here's what he does. We talked about this last week. I said I would come back to it this week. This question he poses to them. It's two-parter. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He is raising a moral issue before the Pharisees, hoping to break through their hard hearts, the stubbornness that they are demonstrating before him. According to the law, he is saying, were they morally obligated to do good or to harm? What's the answer, obviously? To do good. This is a simple... Listen, you don't have to be a a rocket scientist to figure out the answer to this question. It's to do good, of course. And he uses a very stark contrast to emphasize his point. And he only presents two options, teaching them that failure to do one is doing the other. So in other words, if Jesus fails to do good here, he is actually doing harm. That's what he's saying. So let me ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? In a sense, he had painted them into a corner that they should have submitted in that moment. No. No, they have a a few more swings left in them. So he's saying, are you suggesting that Jesus not do a good deed and therefore do what was harmful on the Sabbath by refusing to heal this man's hand? And then he asks them a second question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? And part, of it, part two, to save life or to kill. And what he's doing here is he's tying the two ideas together. To do good, to do harm is the same as to save life or to kill. Because if he simply would have asked the question, is it right to save life or to kill on the Sabbath, they could have answered that question in the affirmative, yes, it's okay to save life on the Sabbath. Remember from last week I told you they had an exception to their law that they had added to the law of God. It was okay if the man was in danger of losing his life for Jesus to heal. What was not okay, and that is on the Sabbath, What was not okay was for Jesus to heal a man who was not in danger of losing his life on the Sabbath. That they defined as work and therefore a violation of the law of God and worthy of death. And worthy of death. So Jesus is saying this. Since you recognize it to be morally good to save a man's life, you yourselves are in agreement that it would be okay for me to save a life on the Sabbath and not let him die, then tell me this. Why would it be, or why would something morally good, such as restoring this man's hand, be unlawful? Is, is doing something morally good unlawful? Is that what you're trying to say right now? Do you want to limit the good that can be done on the Sabbath and therefore bring harm to this man? Now you know why they were silent. Because they would have to surrender that they had misinterpreted the law. They would have to submit to the Lord and say, we got it wrong. We see now. How could it be wrong for you to do morally good? We ourselves recognize the necessity to do the moral good, and that is to save a man's life. And in healing this man, it certainly would be good. And we recognize it wouldn't be right to do harm. He had them. And so they remained silent. And look back at the text. This is, this is really sad. Verse 
Verse 5, chapter 3. And he, that is Jesus, looked around at them with anger and grieved. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Now, to the modern reader, hardness of heart may have more of an emotional meaning. Like you might be thinking he's saying that they lacked compassion or that they didn't have sympathy for others. So let me define it for you a little bit. Heart in the Hebrew, when you hear the word heart in the Hebrew, it's closer to the mind. When we talk about heart, we think of, oh, I've got a broken heart or, oh, my heart is doing flips for him or her. It's very emotional. There's an emotional attachment. But the heart was the center of the mind and the will in the Hebrew understanding. Okay, so think of mind when you read the word heart or the will in the Bible. It's not primarily concerned with the emotions. And the Hebrew understanding here when they say hardness of heart was that these people, the Pharisees, had a stubborn resistance to the purpose of God. It was a stubborn resistance to the purpose of God. The very opposite of that humility and gentle teachableness which God requires. And one writer says, it is a form of pride. And like unbelief, it is in part at least an attitude of the will. They are willfully refusing. Even in light of all the warning signs, all of the arguments, all of the healing, all of the wonders that Jesus was doing, in light of all that, just like the man who went back in, regardless of the warning signs on the outside of the building saying, if you come in here and get your blankets, you're going to die. Even your military training tells you that. Oh, he knew better. He goes in, grabs his blankets, and the results are tragic. And in the same way, these Pharisees, even in light of all the evidence, hardness of heart, I will not bend my will, my mind, my heart to you, Jesus. I will not change my thinking in this moment. The original language there that we looked at in verse 5 where it says that he was, he was angry and then he was grieved. The tenses of the original language tell us this, that his anger was momentary, but his deep-seated grief was ongoing. So he had a, he had a moment of righteous anger. In, 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 in light of what was going on before him. But then that anger quickly turned to grief that remained. Jesus' anger was tempered by godly sorrow for men who could no longer rejoice in the expression of God's goodness to other men. That's what's going on, beloved. That's why it's, it's so tragic. One writer says, In the name of godliness they had be." Come insensitive both to the purposes of God and to the sufferings of men. So I'll close with this. When we, beloved, refuse to submit our minds and our will to the Lord and His Word in every area of life, such as work or marriage, or parenting, or in how we relate to our neighbors, or within the church, or even our families. When we 
refuse, stubbornly refuse to submit ourselves to what the Lord has told us to do or how to act or how to think about those environments, we too are being hard-hearted. And it grieves the Lord. It grieves Him, and it ultimately makes us blind to our own sin, becoming hypercritical of others, irrational. This is a rational behavior that's going on in this text. Numb to God and indifferent towards humanity. So my prayer is that by God's grace, we would not imitate the Pharisees. We would not imitate the Pharisees, but that we would be people identified by our grace that we extend to one another, by the love that we have for one another, and that our hearts would be Plato. You know what Plato is? (laughs) It's that stuff, you know, they play with those little kids, and if you eat it, because you have a, it's really good, because if you've got salt, you know, like instead of eating sunflower seeds, you've never had it? All right, yeah, don't eat it, it's because it doesn't work later for you. But Play-Doh, you would take Play-Doh as a child, and, and it's, it's dough that you play with. That's why they call it Play-Doh, and you could, you could mold it. You could form it the way you want. That is how our hearts should be before the Lord. They should be Play-Doh, the God... Let your word, let your word mold and shape my heart, my mind, my will, that I might conform to you, that I might think your thoughts after you, that I would not grieve you, that I would not become hypercritical of others, that I would see my own sin and spend some time dealing with that instead of pointing out everyone else's, that I would not be hateful of humanity, that I'd be able to love my fellow man, and even my enemy, and that I would extend myself to them and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they might be saved instead of desiring to see them die or be hurt. 